Balikbayan by Sam Castaneda. Balikbayan, a box you send back with all the foreign snacks and goods, but also what we call the diaspora of Filipinos returning home. I come from a family of Balikbayans, dropping their comfortable lives to move to the foggiest city on the American West Coast, trading jeepneys for Toyotas, unsure of what the future held in store for them, and doing it all over again four years later, just before the summer of 08. On the playground, I was always the only Filipino kid. I couldn't always relate to the other Asian kids because I wasn't stereotyped to use chopsticks or need glasses. Not yet, at least. While everyone had a mom and dad, I had a nanay and tatay. My grilled cheese was always made on pandasal instead of wonder bread, and my vacation plans were more Philippines than Florida. You know that feeling you get when you're at an ice cream shop and you want to try that one flavor, but you're too scared that you'll hate it, or people will think you're crazy for ordering it? That's exactly how I felt. But when I got to high school, I realized it's okay to try that flavor and appreciate all the other kinds, all special in their own way, made for different people, different tastes. That didn't stop me from being constantly bombarded with questions doubting my culture, thinking, because I did not join in on all the jokes, or that because I'm friends with foreigners, as they would say, that I was not a true Filipino. I pretended to ignore these comments, making fun of my broken Tagalog, unaware that I knew I was the subject of their chismes or gossip. However, being a true Filipino is more than just the language. It's adobo with your family on a Sunday after mass. It's blasting kahit ayaw mo na in the shower. It's putting up Christmas decorations before you've even got back to school. Because nothing feels better than eating ube ice cream on a beach in Palawan or getting picked up in a tricycle to go to the market in Quezon City. Sometimes it's watching seven Sundays in your phone with one hand while holding a Tim's ice cap in the other. You can still make your way to a tita's house in the dead of winter with your hot lumpias keeping you warm. Looking at both Katniel and Jay-Z and Beyonce, you think, wow, I'd like that someday. As you sit in your room late at night, thinking how upside down your life would be on the other side of the international dateline, had you stayed with your cuyas and ates instead of only seeing them through a screen, thinking about how your upbringing truly gave you the best of both worlds. You realize that you can always send your love through a Balik Bayan box. Anak, kung pwede yung, yung tape ang gandito, anak, ha? Oh, the whole thing. Uh, ah, oh, yeah. and enough. It should be up to here. Okay. Hi, it's Trisha. This is Justine. You're listening to the Living Hyphen podcast. Or more specifically, you're also listening to my brother and I trying to build a Balik Bayan box. Let's do one lining this entire mm-hmm. thing. Okay. And then... Oh, no, we should start with the top. Yeah, I'll do the, the top. Two. Yeah.
And for a visual, a balik bayan box is usually a cardboard shipping box full of stuff that are traditionally sent by overseas Filipinos to their families back home. Justine, what's your earliest memory of a balik bayan box, whether receiving or sending one? You know, I've only I've only ever been on the sending side of the balik bayan box journey. Mm-hmm. I moved from the Philippines to Canada when I was just four years old. So we've actually been the ones to send the balik bayan box. But it's something that my mom and I would put together at least once a year. It was a whole situation. (laughs) It would require months of preparation, getting all of the goods together. The canned foods, which took time to collect because, of course, we waited for the sales. (laughs) The the hand-me-down clothes, mostly my hand-me-down clothes. The toothpaste and toothbrushes all the hotel soaps and shampoos that we would collect if and when we went on vacation. And we would put everything in one section of our living room and organize the items. Heavier items need to go at the bottom with the lighter ones on top. And my mom had this whole process of labeling every item with the name of a family member so that everything would be distributed properly and fairly once (laughs) it reached the Philippines. Again, it was a whole situation. It was so much work. And my job would be to write down the names on the labels and to stick them on each item, like every toothpaste, every canned good, like everything. And it felt so important, you know, like the process of giving a name to an item tied me to these people, my loved ones, my family, who I would only see once in a couple of years if we were lucky. And my mom, she would spend hours arranging and rearranging that box, making sure everything fit just right. It was like, it was like this giant game of Tetris for her, you know, maximizing every corner, every nook and cranny of that box, making sure it was full to the brim. And I didn't understand fully just how important this whole process was until way later in my life. But it's funny, Trisha, because we're actually coming at this from two different ends of the spectrum because you... Right. I grew up in the Philippines. I immigrated to Canada in 2010. So I spent mostly like the first half of my life entrenched in whatever type of Filipino culture was available to my bubble in Manila. So growing up, my perception of what life is like abroad was shaped by what you see of it in Filipino media or in mainstream cultural conversations. And in all those conversations, it's always the Balikbayan box that sort of come to epitomize how Filipinos back in the Philippines perceive what life abroad is like. Mm -hmm. When you get a Balikbayan box, I feel there's always this expectation of Is going to be snacks or chocolate or clothes or just gifts for everyone in the family. All these things that by expectation are items that might not be as easily accessible if you're living in the Philippines. And with that, I think there's a sense of abundance of like easier access of wealth, even that if you're living in the Philippines, you associate with overseas Filipino workers. This is your connection to your relative or your parent who's working abroad these tangible gifts that whether consciously or not, you connect to a certain level of like, wow, this Tita is living her best life abroad, for example. (laughs) But that said, it also hides, I think, a little of what the immigrant experience is truly like. It wasn't until my family and I moved here to Canada, for example, that I saw the flip side of how difficult it can be to pick yourself up from scratch. 
how much work it takes to get to that point where you're able to even fill a like, buy-in box, much less send multiple ones. You know, as with all things hyphenated, I think there are layers here too. As a 1.5 generation immigrant, I was shielded from a lot of that struggle and of that sacrifice. It always struck me as really strange that my mom would spend months trying to collect these hotel soaps and shampoos. I remember she'd even ask the maids of the hotel to give her extra when we were staying at a hotel. And the maids are often Filipinas themselves, so they would happily oblige. Mm -hmm. And I was often embarrassed by it, even though I would never say that out loud to my mom. But now she's listening to this podcast, so Mm -hmm. she knows. But (laughs) I did feel a tinge of shame or embarrassment. Like, why are you asking for these tiny sample size soaps and shampoos? We can afford to just buy the regular stuff. And it's not only until I'd say like the last five years that I truly understood why this was the case. And truth be told, I'm now always collecting those tiny soaps and shampoos, always at the ready for the next Balik Bayan box for us to send. Yeah, and it's a bit of a conundrum, but it goes back to how relatives living far can really only channel back their love and their generosity towards their family through gifts. And the Balikbayan box is the only love language, almost, that's available within your control as a Filipino abroad. Most Filipino immigrants immigrate to pursue an ideal of a better life. And in some cases, it's a very romanticized ideal at that, to put it lightly. And like, you know, it's very strange and also poetic in its own way that the Filipino immigrant experience and all its nuance and difficulties and eventual victories and abundance can be represented by a box of things that you send to your family and how it's become a universal thing that you just do if you're living abroad. With that said, I also love the name Balikbayan and its literal meaning of returning to your nation because, yeah, it's a word that's also used for the immigrants and overseas workers that are returning physically to the country. And yet it's also irrevocably attached to this box that ultimately carries out the return and so much more in place of the person who isn't able to. And today on the Living Hyphen podcast, we're talking about the ways we send love from afar, both tangible and intangible through both space and time, in whatever form we have available to us. And now on this topic of things, here's Portuguese-Canadian writer Sonia Nicholson with Objects of Affection. Well, my fingers didn't fit in the holes quite like they used to when I was young, but everything else was perfect. The white numbers and letters circling the clear plastic dial like groups of children on a merry-go-round. The chrome hook cradling the heavy handset with its curly cord hanging slightly kinked in a toothy grin. The shiny black body with space to tape on a piece of yellowing paper scrawled with the names of family near and far. The price tag may have read $28, but to me, this vintage rotary phone was priceless. In truth, the phone as an object was much less important than what it represented. It was a portal to another time and place, to a specific part of my past that now, 
as people have passed on, has become that much more precious. For as long as I can remember, a phone exactly like this, right down to the white paint splatter across the top, hung in my grandparents' house. It watched quietly as my aunts, uncles, and cousins gathered for Easter dinners. It endured my grandmother's long and loud calls as she exchanged gossip and news from the brown vinyl kitchen chair beneath it. And it patiently waited while all the kids were crammed in the room watching WWF wrestling and drinking instant coffee weakened by a lot of milk. The phone was always there. So when I just happened to see one listed for sale on the Facebook page of a local antique shop recently, it was like receiving a letter that had been lost for 30 years and had finally been delivered. I begged the store to hold it for me and rushed across town later that afternoon. The proprietress listened kindly as I tried to explain my excitement without coming across as crazed. But how could I possibly convey all the meaning contained in that combination of plastic and metal? How could I make a stranger understand the rapid slideshow of memories that played in my mind every time I saw or simply thought about what to most was only an example of outdated equipment. Those of us that work in history know that what makes an artifact more attractive is the story behind it. Just as a photograph loses its value if we don't know at least one of the five W's, who, what, where, when, and why, an heirloom without an anecdote becomes an orphan of sorts. It can provide information as an item in and of itself but the relationships are lost. What once played a steady role in the life of a family is now seen only for its function and form. A phone is a phone and nothing more. But objects have power. The mere sight of a ragged teddy bear, an elegant felt hat, a rusty spoon, or, in my case, a paint-speckled phone, can transport us. Suddenly, we remember the good, the bad, and everything in between. As we run fingers over familiar surfaces, that contact triggers tidal waves of nostalgia. Keats wrote that touch has a memory. The tactile evokes the long-forgotten moments that have receded farther and farther with each passing year and brings them back to life in vivid detail. In my work in archives and museums, I have seen it time and again with visitors and donors. To listen to them recount their days is intimate, at times uncomfortable, and always a privilege not to be taken lightly. When their gaze shifts to another era after they have, perhaps hesitantly, reverently, laid the pieces of their history on the table, you fade into the background. You are only a facilitator. The objects are the transmitters connecting past and present, memory and moment, young and old, as they are picked up one by one and turned over, the adjustments somehow providing better reception. And if you listen closely, you will hear the message loud and clear. The stories matter. As I get older, I find myself increasingly tuning into my own. At home, my phone is now mounted on the wall, and it looks like it has always been there. For my children, it is a novelty. They are amazed at how long it takes to make a call using rotary dial. 
Impressively enough, the phone actually works. For me, it is a tangible connection to something greater, those that have come and gone, still loved and still remembered. Family that lives on through the telephone line, answering the call every time I wrap the cord around my finger. Issue 2 is now available for pre-order. Just head over to living-ca to pre-order a copy of Resistance Across Generations, our latest collection of art, poetry, short stories, and essays. It's a fierce expression of our resistance across generations and all the ways in which we rise. I text my mother every day by Anne-Claire Baggio. Hi, Anuk. How are you? Good morning, Anuk. Love you. Did you eat lunch yet? What did you do today? I live away from home, so mom and I text. When I'm at university, we text each other every day. There are not long conversations. Sometimes we're just checking in. I'm at work. Love you. I'm in class. Love you. I want to call home, I just can't find time. Or I can't make time. It's okay. School first enough. Texting is not like calling. Texting is not like video chatting. Sometimes it feels like nothing. Sometimes I feel left behind. I still text her anyways. Hi Ma, I'm doing alright. How are you doing, Ma? Have a good shift, Mama. Mama will always text back. How are you doing, Anak? I'm good. Have work soon. Thank you, Anak. Love you. By reading my mother's text, I can hear her voice. I love you too, Mama. I love you more, Anak. Technology has truly closed the gap in distance in such a profound way. I still remember when I was younger, my mom, my dad, and I, we'd often go to the convenience store to buy those phone cards to call internationally. Mm, Same. Yeah, we did that too. Yeah. They were to call the Philippines for a far cheaper rate that we could afford through our regular phone company. Wow. It's actually wild for me to recall this memory. It's been so long since we've ever had to do that. It's just so deeply buried in the back of my brain now, but I totally remember how I'd have the all important and fun job of getting to scratch the phone card to get that unique dial in code. Mm -hmm. There'd be like 20 numbers to dial and then another 10 to call the Philippines with all the country and area codes. And I don't even know, I don't even remember what else, but I remember we would just have to hope and cross our fingers and pray that our family would be home on the other side of the world to pick up that call or else we'd lose those precious minutes. Mm -hmm. 
And now look at us. I can call my cousins from anywhere around the world in a heartbeat using WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger. And it's not even just audio. There's video too. Not only has this technology been so important in bridging the gap between homeland and diaspora, it's doubly so during this time of pandemic. And it's actually been so significant for everyone during this time, even if we live just in different households. Like one of the major ways we've connected and loved from afar is through this video technology. But what if that distance between us isn't just a distance across physical space, but a distance in time? Tell us more what you mean by that. Actually, I'm going to let our next act tell us. A letter to an ancestor whose existence I cannot confirm by Vanessa Vignes Wormworthy. Dear Blink, one of the most terrifying moments of my life was on the beach in Ule during our last visit to Sri Lanka in 2015. The tide was stronger than anything I had ever experienced and the thought of that alone exhilarated me. Somehow, the water of the Indian Ocean, despite being salt enough that accidentally tasting it induced a feeling of nausea in me, felt better on my skin than all of the freshwater lakes in Ontario. Some romantic part of me believed that this was my body's reaction to my ancestral home, that this water would leave me cleaner than I have ever been before. Perhaps this part of me was the reason I wasn't paying attention to a particularly vicious wave approaching me as I waded, waist-deep, into the water. The wave hit me with a force that knocked me underwater and onto my back, the coarse sand digging into my skin as though someone was dragging their claws along my tailbone. I gasped in surprise and accidentally gulped a mouthful of ocean water. Panic set in immediately and I found myself struggling to get to my feet against the pull of the wave. The moment felt like an hour, but in reality was only three seconds, maybe four. When the wave receded and I stood up in the water, I felt as though my skin was covered in a layer of electricity, sending sharp shocks through my body wherever it made contact with the salty sea air. Feeling like a child who had been reprimanded for playing with a lighter, I turned around and slowly made my way back to the shore. Trying to figure out who you are is like wading into the water at Ule again. I can only trace my family tree back two or three generations before the names and times get fuzzy and my parents can only give me approximations of birth dates and familial relationships. The spelling and names gets confused when translated from Tamil to English, and nobody knows why someone moved from one village to the other. Past that sits you, this ancestor whose existence I cannot confirm, who may be the source of the shape of my nose or my fear of deep, dark water. Sometimes I look at a map of the island and pick out all of the places that you could have lived I find myself writing stories about you in my head, who lived in Peretetore, were friends with a cotton farmer's daughter, and sometimes you were afraid to bathe in the ocean, fearing that the water would pull you under. 
You were fishermen, and after a day's work, you would watch the Dutch ships pull into the harbor, guided by the smoke of Queen's Tower. You lived long ago, had a smart wife and 15 children, and were known for your ability to breed strong, powerful horses. But these are all fantasies I've made up. I read books and watch movies and hear stories of Tamil history, and I try to imagine where you fit into it. I imagine that some record of you existed in the Jeffna Library before it burned down, a poem or a photo or a note in the margin of a book, something you hoped your future descendants would see. I invent family heirlooms that were lost on the move from Jeffna to Klinochi to Jeffna again. I think of all the stories that were not passed down between generations, silenced by time or trauma or a prayer to leave the pain in the past. And still, with that desperate urge to know you, the thought of you leaves me as overwhelmed and afraid as the water in Ulle. Sometimes, to myself, I'll admit that my biggest fear is that I am your biggest fear, this apprehensive girl who was born in the cold Canadian winter, who speaks English better than she does Tamil, who didn't step foot onto the island until she was 14. I am terrified that there are a thousand things about who I am, the life I lead, that you would have thought was disappointing. My biggest fear is that I am everything you wish your descendants weren't, and the thought of discovering this haunts me whenever I think of you. When I was a child, the only concept I had of family back home came through phone calls, photos, and images of warfare splayed across the six o'clock news each night. I had no concept of the generations before my grandparents, who you were or what dreams you had. I once bought a book on genealogy, but abandoned it with frustration because there were no records, no libraries, no museums that I could visit to find pieces of you. When all of the memories I had of the island were secondhand recollections of my mother's childhood in Jeffna and overheard stories of hiding from shell attacks, I couldn't fathom what our family looked like before your recent history. Part of me was afraid to ask, fearing that I would learn that I've lost something precious before I even knew that it existed. It was only when we first visited Sri Lanka in 2010 that I was able to create an image of you. It was at another beach in Kelladi, this time in the evening. I was standing at the edge of the water, the waves lapping at my calves, loud enough to wash out the sound of the beachgoers behind me. Staring into the expanse of the Indian Ocean, I was struck by the realization that you, at one point, must have done the same thing. This was one of the few moments in my life that I felt like I could know you that there were parts of me that came from you. Suddenly, I was sure that you, friend of the cotton farmer's daughter, fisherman on the tides of Delft, breeder of horses and father 15, must have stood on the shores of the island and felt like you were standing on the edge of the universe. I felt the urge tip forward to fall off the edge of this galaxy, but instead I turned around. In the distance, Vendors hawked cassava chips and popsicles as my family chattered away, stepping forward to dip their toes into the water. I wondered what the beach looked like when you stood on it, looking at the palm trees and the endless stretch of white sand. It was then, at 14, that I began to fantasize about who you may be, 
the potential of who you could be spread out before me like the endless water of the Indian Ocean. And since I began concocting these stories in my head, I have developed that fear that reminds me of the strong waves at the beach in Ule. But more recently, I have been considering an idea that makes my chest fill with giddy excitement when it crosses my mind. A thought that makes me want to wade into the waters at Ule again. Sometimes, when I trace my fingers over the map of the island, wondering who you could have been, I think to myself, What if I am all of your dreams fulfilled? With love, Vanessa Vignesora Murthy. This is a wrap on season one of the Living Hyphen podcast. Living Hyphen is a community exploring the experiences of hyphenated Canadians. Issue 2, Volume 1 of our magazine is now up for pre-order on livinghyphen.ca. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram via at Living Hyphen, and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash livinghyphen. Thank you to Rising Youth for making this season possible, and special thanks to Sam Castaneda, Sonia Nicholson, and Claire Baggio, and Vanessa Vigneswara-Morthy for sharing their work with us this episode. You can find more about them in our show notes. The music in this episode is by the Blue Dot Sessions. To Living Hyphen's mighty founder and editor-in-chief and my incredible co-host, Justine Abigail Yu, there are not enough words for how thankful I am for the opportunity to work on this podcast. Getting to carry these stories as an editor and producer has felt not only like looking straight at a warm, bright light, but getting to hold that light as well. All my love to our writers and readers and listeners, and all my gratitude to everything that the Living Hyphen community is and will continue to grow to be. Thank you for having me. And as always, as forever, to you for listening to our stories, thank you so much. Until next time.